0: happy to have the opportunity to speak speak with you and uh, share some of, some of my thoughts, which I hope will be encouraging to you. Over the last two and a half years, my wife has truly come to appreciate just how good the male mind is. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> just how good the male mind is at remembering useless movie quotes. <laughs> it's a secret talent that I have, that I'm sure many men in this audience share. The things that are really important, the things when Emily says, all right, I need you to remember this, there's about a 50% chance I'm going to get it. But that random line from Star Wars Episode Four, I got it, and I'll always have it. Well, according to the Internet Movie Database, the ultimate source on all things movie-related The top five most quotable movies. Number five, Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean, Black Pearl. Number four, Forrest Gump. Number three, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Number two, a little bit before my time, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I feel like that was an 80s kids kind of thing. And then number one, The Princess Bride. Right? Everybody knows it. Well, we're going to join the Princess Bride in the pit of despair. As the grandpa says, ah, yes, where were we? Ah, the pit of despair. Well, in the pit of despair, Wesley has been uh, captured by Humperdinck and his cronies. And he's lying there on the table. And Humperdinck, after having been refused by Princess Buttercup, runs to Wesley and says, you truly love each other and you might have been truly happy. No one, no, not one couple in a century has that chance, no matter what the storybooks say. And so I think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will. And so he turns the lever all the way up to 50, and the, the guard says, "Not to 50." And Wesley suffers greatly. Well, suffering is one of those things that we shouldn't be surprised by, and yet we often are. A passage has recently stuck out to me in my mind. In Acts chapter 9, when we meet a fellow named Paul, or he's going to be named Paul, he's named Saul, but he's find him in an interesting place, and all we know about him so far to this point is that he's not a good guy. Uh, he has been rounding up Christians, chasing them down from town to town, capturing them and throwing them in prison. And Jesus confronts Saul with this light and Paul is, Saul is blinded. and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you, per, you are persecuting. And ultimately, he's told to go into the city and to wait for further instructions. And then Jesus reaches out to a man named Ananias. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man... From Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from your chief beast, chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings of the sons of Israel For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. If we didn't know anything else about the story of Saul, other than what we've known so far, that he's been chasing Christians from town to town and throwing them into jail for no good reason, and that now he's been blinded and is basically in the Lord's custody... And Jesus says here, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It might be difficult to to think, is Jesus the good guy or the bad guy in this story? It sounds like Paul's been thrown into the worst, the worst prison. He's he's about to be tortured. He's about to suffer. But we really get to know what, what happens next when we see the story of Paul. When his name is changed and his life is changed. And we read what Jesus has in mind for Paul when he talks about his suffering. And it's not what we think. But when I read this verse, it raises good questions. I will show him how much he must suffer. First question I have when I read that verse is, is there a quota of suffering that I must endure before I'm done? Is there an amount that... I've got to fill up. Am I 50% of the way there? Am I only 10% of the way there to filling up my quota? The fair question, is my suffering and the degree to which I suffer the result of wrongdoing? Like we said, to this point in Saul's story, he's been a bad fella. Is the suffering that he's going to endure the rest of his life the result of his Mistakes, his sins, his violent aggression toward the cause of Christ, as he himself would even call it. And is now he going to pay, penny for penny, that all of the blood he has been responsible for will now be drawn from his own back? Is his suffering and the degree to which he's about to suffer the result of wrongdoing and is the same to be said for us? So that whenever something's going wrong in my life, Am I supposed to learn some lesson that I've done something wrong? Or if I look at somebody else and I see that their life seems to be going much more easily than mine. Are they better than I am or am I worse than they are? Can we correlate these things? I can't give an exhaustive list on all of the things that could be said about suffering. But I hope to give at least two brief reminders for you this morning so that if you find yourself in the middle of a long passage, as we've just sung, that you might have a moment while we're sitting here in these chairs away from life, thinking together about what's going on outside of these doors, putting everything into the proper perspective so that when we leave this place, we can go out with renewed perspective and confidence and a fresh lens and conquer the world through Christ. That's what I hope to do for you this morning. Form your perspective if you're in the middle of suffering and to hopefully get you ready. If you find yourself on a plateau, a high point this morning when everything's been going well, maybe for a change, the valley will come again. So let's be ready whether you're there now or you will be in the future. The first thing I want to say is that suffering on earth is not punitive. Suffering on earth is not a punishment for something that you've done wrong. Consider Job. Job was a man whom God boasted of. Have you seen my servant Job? There is none like him on the face of the earth. The Lord tells the devil. Job was a faithful servant. And perhaps the worst string of events that could have ever happened to a human happened all at once. All of his children were killed. His health was taken from him. All of his possessions were stolen. And there he was lying in a very, very dusty pit of despair. For no reason. He didn't do anything wrong. God even said, he's great. There's no one else as good as Job. No one else is faithful to me as Job. And yet Job endured a great deal of suffering. And he had many questions. As we know, when we went through our study of Job not too long ago, He wanted to know, was there something wrong that he had done? And many of his friends, their false philosophy was, well, if you've been experiencing great tragedy, you've probably done something terrible. And we know that that wasn't true. And ultimately, Job was vindicated at the end of his story. And his friends were corrected. But also consider Joseph. Joseph was just a young man. He may have lacked a little bit of tact when speaking to his brothers, as younger brothers often do. But he hadn't done anything wrong when he went to meet his brothers in the field while they were shepherding their father's flocks. And they betrayed him and threw him into a pit and were going to leave him for dead until they decided better to take him out of the pit and to sell him into slavery to some Ishmaelite traders who brought him down into slavery in an Egyptian household by a man named Potiphar. Joseph, being a young man, hadn't done anything wrong. He did not deserve to be stolen from the love of his father's home and to be imprisoned falsely and enslaved. And yet it happened. And for decades, Joseph suffered in Egypt. And we know the Lord's hand was with him, that God caused him to prosper. And that even though things were awful, God helped. But it wasn't until Joseph, I think, saw his brothers coming to him in the middle of a famine, and he saw that he was in a position being in charge, second in command in the land of Egypt. He was in a position then to preserve their life and the life of all of their family that Joseph was able to actually have perspective and say, maybe there's a reason why this all happened. But it wasn't because he had done something wrong. And so there is no reason for us to think that suffering on earth is punitive that if something goes wrong not according to your plan that it's because you've done something wrong a couple of generations downstream from joseph when moses speaks to the israelites he's about to drop them off they're about to go into the land of israel which has been promised and he's staying behind his his time leading the children of israel has come to an end but he's pausing to reflect And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says, Remember the way the Lord has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, test you, and know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he reminds them that they're going into a good land, a land that is ready for them to enter. The fields are already planted and they don't, even have to, they don't even have to plant the crops. They can just go right in and harvest someone else's work. The cities are already built for them. They don't have to build from the ground up. The infrastructure is already there. Israelites are going into a good land. But before they've gone into that good land, they have to pause and reflect on the struggles they've endured in the wilderness. And why have they occurred? Because they were being tested To see what was in their heart. When Peter speaks of testing in the letter, 1 Peter, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which has come upon you for your testing. In 1 Peter 4.12, As though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Things are difficult now, but we're being tested to see what's in our heart, to see what the quality of our faith is. In chapter one of first Peter, he says that our testing occurs for the proof of our faith. First Peter, chapter one, verse six and seven and eight. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, More precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We prove our faith to God by being faithful through suffering. By being faithful through difficult circumstances, we're able to come through the other side of that valley of the shadow of death, having faith in God and having proven our faith. It's no good just to say you're the best team in the world. At the beginning of the season, the Kansas City Chiefs thought they were underdogs. They thought they were the best team in the world. They thought that everybody else thought they couldn't win. And so when they finally did win, we said, aha, we showed you we're the best team in the world. And for the last week, they've been bragging about how good they were having won the Super Bowl. Well, before they went through the playoffs and before they played the regular season, wouldn't have been any good just to say we're the best. They had to prove it. They had to face their opponents, they had to go through the playoffs, they had to win the close games where they maybe shouldn't have won. They had to find a way to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat so that at the end of the season they could stand in victory and say, we have won. Take that sports analogy and now realize that it's the same for us. It's no good to stand on the, at the beginning of suffering, the beginning of trial, having been untested and saying, I am faithful to God without having ever had to prove it. And so God allows us to be tested so that we can prove our faith. And more than proving our faith, also understand that our struggles and our suffering act to perfect us. They change us. They mold us and form us into somebody we would not be without suffering. First, understand that it was fitting for Jesus to suffer. The Hebrew writer in chapter 2, speaking of the foresight and the expert authoring of God, says that it was fitting, it was appropriate in writing the story of our salvation. It was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation suffering, When I read this verse, I like to think of Jesus and God and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. So they're, they're planning everything out. They're laying the foundation for what's about to happen in creation, and the story of man, and the salvation of man. And I like to think they're writing the story ahead of time. They're thinking, okay, what, what, what's going to happen here? How are we going to do this? What's going what's to be the best thing to do here? And they think, okay, I've, I've got the ultimate thing here's the best thing that can happen. We are going to save them from their sins, but we are going to perfect the author by suffering too. And the effect of this is profound. Jesus himself had to suffer. In order to redeem us who have committed sins in the flesh, Jesus, being our sacrificial lamb, had to suffer in the flesh to pay the price for our sins. But the other thing that he accomplished was that he made himself relatable to us who are in the flesh. He made himself understand. He put himself in a position to know what we go through so that he might be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because Jesus suffered, he is able to understand and sympathize and help us and come to our aid as our great high priest. So first understand that Jesus was perfected by suffering, but that we, being children of God and being part of Jesus, are now called to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if the author and perfecter of our faith was made perfect through suffering, then we who are called to follow in his image will also be perfected by our suffering. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He being the firstborn implies that we follow after him. If he's the firstborn, if he's gone through everything the first time, then we come next and follow in that same path that Jesus has already walked. He showed us how to do it but we're conformed to his image. And so because of that, Paul is able to say emphatically in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that our momentary light affliction is producing for us the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It produces for us. When we go through these difficult things and don't deserve them, And as 1 Peter says, we suffer not as evildoers, but as those who do what is right. Then we are producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he gives a great illustration. He says, the mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And a key itself is a strange thing. If you had never seen a lock, your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a peculiar swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it, stitch by stitch, as a glove is made for a hand. When we look at our suffering and we look at them just as this side of eternity. and We neglect to look at the things that are waiting for us. And the purpose behind our sufferings, the eternal purposes behind these. And we just think the pain and the suffering, we're producing something. Things are happening. Why? Unless we're able to look at what comes in the future... The present has no definition. It has no reason. It has no explanation. The key. He talks about a key and a lock. A key is made for a lock and a lock is made for the key. But if you take them apart from one another, they really don't make much sense. If you had never seen a lock or a key and you just saw a key, a piece of metal with random bumps on it, you wouldn't know what it was. What did it do? It doesn't doesn't do anything. Wave it around. Blow on it? No, it doesn't do anything. Until you realize that it fits in a lock that is made just for that key, the key has no explanation or definition. And the same thing for the keyhole. You might look at it and think, what does it do? Until the key comes into contact with it. And so the soul, our existence here, which is the key, which crafts us, and makes us unique and gives us little bumps and ridges and edges makes one side smooth and another side rough. Until we find that place in which we are bound to go, it doesn't make much sense. But knowing that that place has been prepared for us, a place in which we fit perfectly, kind of an aha moment, when we finally move past this fleshly world and its existence and the veil of fleshly weakness is lifted, And we realize things for what they truly are. And see just how close within our grasp eternal life was this whole time. And say, aha, this is what it is. Well, of course, this is what it is. Until that happens, we just believe. We are told that there is a place where we will fit. Being crafted as we are. And all of these difficult circumstances, which may lack explanation now, ultimately will be revealed. The reason will be revealed. But going back to Paul. Paul, who uh, Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. When we read some of Paul's letters. He talks about his suffering quite a bit. And I like the way he talks about it in Ephesians chapter three. In verse one, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter four, verse one, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul has perspective in his imprisonment. He's not a prisoner of unjust causes. Well, he certainly is. Paul didn't deserve to be chased from town to town by the Jews who chased him from town to town and thrown falsely into prison. In some cases, he was a little upset about that, like in Philippi, where he said, no, 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 no. Come back out here. Let them tell. Tell everybody how they falsely imprisoned us. He wasn't always happy about it. But he acknowledged that he was in prison on behalf of the Lord. The Lord had a plan for his imprisonment. And it wasn't just that he was suffering unjustly by the hands of cruel men, but that his suffering had a divine, eternal purpose. And so he almost wore it as a badge of honor, I think. Not always enjoying it. He asked for his thorns in the flesh to be removed, and yet Jesus said, they will remain for my grace is perfected in your weakness and my power is sufficient for you. But Paul Almost wore his imprisonment as a badge of honor. He says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 13. He says, my imprisonment, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In Philemon chapter 1, as he writes his letter. He says, that I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus, prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner of God. And finally, writing to Timothy near the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and also an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul is able, ultimately, to embrace his suffering because he realizes that his suffering is what brings him closer to Christ. We are conformed to Christ by suffering, Christ had to suffer. And Christ was made perfect because of his suffering. And so, therefore, we also suffer. And it isn't always easy in the middle of those difficulties to smile. When things aren't going according to plan and when they pile up, because problems don't often just come one at a time, they don't come in a nice, decent order, evenly spaced apart. You know, often things go downhill quickly. Things get very difficult and harder and harder. As we build more endurance, we get used to carrying our current workload, and then more weight is added onto the barbell of our lives. And we get stronger and stronger, and then things get harder, and yet we get stronger. It's not always easy, and we don't always have time to reflect and to see a divine purpose behind our suffering. But we have that time this morning. If you're going through a difficult circumstance, if you are unjustly suffering, if you're being falsely accused, if you're having difficulty, in whatever form that may take, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend to understand your own struggles. I, I only know what God has said that we are perfected by our suffering. I understand the things that I'm going through, and you understand the things that you're going through. But Jesus understands all things. And Jesus can understand and sympathize with all of our weakness. Jesus is always near to help us. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples... If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He lays it out pretty clear. And yet we fall into the trap so often of thinking that once this current trial is over, then everything will be just fine. Once the something or another happens, once I get through this phase, once something stops happening, then I'll be good. Just another trial waiting after that. Once I cross this bridge of life into the arms of my Savior through death, then everything will be all right. But not until then. And that's okay. Because Jesus has not left us alone to suffer, but he is with us and near us. And he hears us. And he wants to help us. And he wants us to know that he's provided an answer for these problems. He's provided a solution for all of these difficulties and all of our sufferings. The answer to those problems is Jesus. There is no physical solution to suffering. Once you solve one problem, another will sprout up. The only solution has to look beyond physical and must be eternal. Look at your body. See that it's decaying and there's nothing to stop it from happening. So the answer is not to stop your body from growing older. It's not to keep your joints from hurting. It's not to just have a little bit more energy in the morning because eventually you're going to run out of energy. If it happens quickly or if it happens slowly, none of your problems presently will be solved by a physical solution. The only solution that has any kind of lasting effect is Jesus, who has come to earth, suffered in the flesh to pay the price for our sins. And if you are not in Christ, then you are still in your sins. But it doesn't have to be that way. You have the invitation from Christ, from God, to join with him in baptism, to wash away your sins, and to take up your cross and continue suffering in this earth. But knowing that there's a much more beautiful reality that's waiting for us just on the other side of this temporary existence. This temporary existence, which is just the length of a blink of an eye, and which will be surpassed by eternity. Timeless, ageless, fadeless, waiting for us in the presence of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to become one. And if you are a Christian who needs help in your walk, who needs help in your suffering and your struggling, whatever that challenge may be, a great group of Christians following in the image of Christ and joining with him in the likeness of his suffering are here and want to help. If there's any way that we can help you this morning, won't you make your needs known more?